Coastal Front welcomes Sam Lee, President and CEO of North Isle Copper and Gold. North Isle is a Vancouver-based junior resource company committed to the development of copper and gold exploration projects on Vancouver Island just south of Port Hardy. The company portfolio consists of two advanced stage deposits with current NI43101 resources and two early stage deposits spanning across 33,000 hectares of mineral claims. With strong tailwinds in the global copper market, a small TSX venture company like this can't go wrong with Sam Lee. Sam holds a Bachelor of Applied Science from the Faculty of Engineering in the, at the University of Toronto. He's a graduate of the Lassonde Mineral Engineering Program, and he's a CFA charter holder. Before joining North Isle Copper and Gold in October of 2020, Sam spent nearly 20 years as an investment banker with his last position as Managing Director of CIBC World Markets and their Global Mining Group. So Sam, thanks for being on the show today. You're most welcome, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Okay, Sam. So I'm really pumped to have you here. Uh, we've known each other on a friendly basis. Our families have known each other for a few years. Yep. And I was really excited when I saw you pivot from being an investment banker, which yep. is generally for most people, I'm sure for you, a pretty great job to have. You would have been very good at that role. So to make that jump to being a CEO of a public company, there must have been something behind North Isle Copper that got you excited about being there. So why don't we start with that? What was it that brought you to want to become the CEO of a public company and exit 20 years of being an investment banker? Absolutely. Well, as all professions, you're always looking for substance and purpose. And certainly uh, banking has been such a transactional uh, endeavor for me, and it's been quite a successful endeavor for me, you know, working on over $100 billion of M&A deals uh, during those 20 years seeing um, the precipice of cycles starting and ending uh, during those 20 years, being able to recognize those points in the cycle and then attaching yourself to an asset and a group of people uh, that can bring that uh, asset into fruition is something that is tremendously impactful and exciting for me. Um, to have the purpose of being able to build something that is going to be meaningful, material, uh, and very relevant uh, with respect to what this world needs today, but also with respect to our communities. These, this asset literally is in our backyard. It's something yeah. that we have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that there is um, prosperity for all that are involved. Okay, well, that's good. That's a good starting point. Um, when I look at successful exploration companies, and of course, Vancouver is a hotbed for mining, our country is, um, you highlighted about team and there's there's really two big things that have to happen you have to have obviously a great resource you have to have good discoveries yep. um, and you have to have a really good team so did you bring in your own team to north isle copper did you become part of a team what what drew or was it the asset itself mm -hmm. and the and the project what was it that kind of really brought you in the first point sure absolutely um well as i said team and asset um so our chairman dale corbin mm -hmm. who uh, actually just got inducted into the canadian mining hall of fame is best known uh for developing an asset called penasquito uh bringing it into the feasibility stage and then selling it to glamis gold corp for 1.2 billion dollars um, he also uh, is the founder of a company called western copper uh, and of course the founder of north isle copper and gold and so he's a gentleman who's been around for many many decades he's seen eight to ten of these types of cycles he's an incredible counselor larry for me he's a he's obviously a, an invaluable chairman uh, with someone that can provide great direction uh, and someone that i trust completely um, so it starts from there okay uh, the second part of it is uh, recognizing, as I said, where we are in any point of a cycle, 
Um, and certainly this project here is a, a very large copper and gold uh, project with approximately 5 billion pounds of copper equivalent. Wow. Um, and within that distribution, it's approximately 64% copper and about 33% gold. And so these are commodities in my mind that are exceedingly relevant in the future of our world, certainly through electrification, through carbon neutrality, carbon net zero, decarbonization. You can't do any of that without copper. Okay. So, and we are gonna spend some time talking about why it's relevant. Just to go back to your 5 billion pounds yep. of copper, can you give the listeners a context of what that means? I mean, it, it sure. sounds like a big number. Sure. Is it a big number? It is a very big number and uh, it's reflective uh, and is really the underpinning uh, value of our company, which is defined uh, currently by a preliminary economic study. So this is a engineering study that is uh, within the 43101 context. Uh, it's uh, obviously a regulatory framework that recognizes this as being um, a, a, a preliminary economic study, and it yields about $1.1 billion in net present value, um, wow. net present value eight after tax. Mm -hmm. um, that's done obviously at a $3.25 copper price environment and 1650 gold, we're well beyond those levels today. Okay. Um, so for me, uh, being So quite a bit lower than where the market's at right now. Exactly, yeah. so it's, 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 it's something that clearly we can talk about uh, shortly, yeah. what is driving uh, the prices uh, going to levels that we haven't seen, quite frankly, since 2011. Uh, but the reality is based on very conservative pricings uh, that, uh, again, is at $3.25, copper, sixteen fifty gold. Uh, this project um, is a very, very significant project. So the project is uh, on North Vancouver Island. I grew up in Port Alberni, That's so right. it's in my kind of backyard. I That's used to right. play hockey. We've got a hockey background, both of us. I yes. used to play a lot of games up there. Indeed. Tough kids up in, in Hardy and other areas around there. Um, so can you give us a description of the main, I mentioned in our intro, there's there's two advanced stage deposits and then two early stage deposits. Do you want to kind of quickly name those and what they kind of, what they mean? Sure. So the preliminary economic study, the one that yields a $1.1 billion uh, value, uh, is uh, comprised of Hushima and Red Dog. And so these projects are approximately a 30 to 40 minute drive on a mostly paved road from Port Hardy, um, which I think uh, people don't recognize how important infrastructure plays in the development of a pro uh, project. And in our case, uh, we are approximately 25 kilometers away from already a deep sea water port. Um, it was uh, used by uh, BHP for a project called Island Copper. It's arguably one of the closest, if not the closest deep sea water port from continental America to Japan, which is where they sold their concentrate to Sumitomo. Mm -hmm. It's a very high purity concentrate, low deleterious elements. So if you ever hear Robert Friedland talk about premium concentrates and he's talking about stratification of multiple three four five up to 20 premiums this would be one of the highest premium concentrates because it does have low arsenic and low deleterious elements as identified uh, through the contracts that bhp had with sumatomo okay. so you have that only about 25 kilometers away we share the land this is the, now this is a mine that bhp had it's been closed subsequently correct right? so, so they've kind of they've mined it they've mined it out okay. um it was uh, approximately the same size a little bit smaller than what we're contemplating today wow. uh, they used part hardy uh, as their 
epicenter to house um, over 500 direct workers, over 1,000, 2,000 indirect workers. Yeah. Um, so there is no need for a camp. Uh, these workers literally drove about half an hour on, on a nicely paved road to work yeah. every day, uh, which obviously is significant as it relates to cutting down on your costs. Yeah. Um, Do you remember what years they were mining there? Yeah, it was, it was in the 70s up to 1995. Yeah, that makes sense because growing up in Port Alberni, one of the things I recall was that Port Hardy had all the resources we had in Port Alberni of uh, fishing and logging, but they also had mining. I just didn't know what it was. So those are your two, uh, the two big projects, the Red Dog and Hushima. Hushima. That's right. Um, you also have two other projects. Yep. Do you want to spend a minute to talk about those? What we have in uh, one of our satellite deposits, which is only about three kilometers away, uh, we've released this a couple of months ago, is an area called Northwest Expo that has uh, what we believe is approximately 40 to 50 million tons of incremental uh, mineralization, uh, which we are setting out to define uh, within the 43101 context okay. uh, this year. Uh, so that's quite significant. It's got higher grades, approximately four to five times higher gold grades than what we currently have in our resources, and all of it would be incremental. Um, the second uh, asset we have is Pemberton Hills, which uh, we have a we had a, a joint venture with Freeport, and this is really the elephant hunting um, prospect, which is between our asset and the BHP asset. Uh, and so if this is, is going to be, obviously, very early days, but what we see today um, is an enormous system that spans approximately six kilometers and a kilometer deep of a lithocap, which is usually typically a structure in geology that caps uh, large porphyry systems. And mm -hmm. so what we found uh, thus far with the help of Freeport um, is uh, that it's big, it's massive, and it's deep. Uh, which isn't necessarily good. So um, we've now come uh, to grips with uh, a theory that uh, uh, predicts that we can intercept the porphyry at a shallower distance because uh, we believe that the system is tilted towards a valley. So that's the work that we're going to be doing this year around Pemberton Hills, um, uh, in addition to advancing our project and also defining uh, an additional 43101 resource on Northwest Expo. So for those listeners who may not be familiar with the exploration process uh, behind mining, uh, there are essentially seven stages in the life of a mine, four of which are what are referred to as pre-production. So there's exploration, evaluation, feasibility, and development. Um, Sam, can you maybe comment, just to be really abundantly clear in layman's terms, where these two projects fit in that stage? So uh, the stages uh, are essentially exploration, which we've obviously conducted and yeah. we've found the resource base. Um, and the preliminary economic study, which we've completed last year, is the first of three, typically, uh, economic evaluations. And so it goes through preliminary economic assessment, through preliminary feasibility study, and then feasibility study. Okay. And so through these stage gates, uh, typically what happens is companies uh, tend to re-rate. Um, as they de-risk, uh, there's more confidence around uh, the engineering and the uh, resource definition uh, that there is a stronger belief and uh, stronger um, appreciation towards your intrinsic value, which is typically defined by your net present values. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's one of these um, situations where where we are in the market today really does require that thought leadership. Um, and you know that we have a good cornerstone base. We're amassing that sponsorship um, currently. Where things get really interesting though, is yeah. when you get into that fourth to ninth inning. Uh, of, and that would have been 
based on the last cycle, circa 2006 to 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, uh, but for the global financial crisis, yeah. which was probably about a one-year disruption for yeah. at least the copper side of it. Uh, and that's when we saw valuations go absolutely through the roof. There was yeah. an insatiable. This was the the commodity super cycle you're referring to. It is a commodity yeah. super cycle, and 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 I think the more important thing is that um, it really, at least from the copper space, this is where I saw the majority of my you know hundred billion dollars of M and A transactions. Within that time, you really did see some very non-traditional players coming in for these assets because they needed to get their hands on products. So it's not just the strategics, it's the traders, the off-takers, the smelters who are just looking to secure off-takes. Um, we saw obviously the royalty companies coming in for the precious metal products. We saw um, a tremendous amount of strategic activity. So fast forward to today, what are we seeing in some similarities? Well, China is not growing at 11.5% GDP growth, which was the probably one of the exclusive drivers for the last super cycle. But we are seeing that electrification narrative. Mm -hmm. We are seeing the decarbonization, which effectively means the rest of the world is looking to do exactly what China was doing over the last cycle, yeah. which is, you know, China was urbanizing, which means electrifying, right? The rest of the world is really at that position where they're now picking up that um, growth initiative and that that insatiable need. Of course, you know, with other economic drivers and, and stimuluses, including Biden's, the Biden administration's um, uh, uh, um, infusion of $3 trillion into the building new infrastructure, um, that just exasperates the need for commodities such as copper. Well, Sam, that's a great segue into talking about how copper uh, fits into the whole sort of global economy. I'm gonna start with a couple of fun copper facts. Get this thing really interesting. So first of all, a, uh, a megawatt project that's being powered by, um, by solar panels, for every one megawatt of solar power panels that you want to have run to generate electricity and to power a home with a megawatt take gives you about a month and a half of, of power for home. You need 5.5 tons of copper for, for one of those projects. Um, one of those wind turbines that you see in, in, out in the farmer's fields, each one of those require almost a thousand pounds of copper to kind of generate the electricity that they need to generate. And the last one I think will really sink in for people here as we see more and more people moving to uh, electric cars from uh, gas powered cars. A, today, a gas powered car takes about anywhere from 20 to 50 pounds of copper, depending on the type of car, to produce that car. An electric car takes almost 200 pounds of copper. So just that alone gives a sense of this massive, insatiable demand for copper. So laying you up for that, tell me a bit more about what you know about copper on a global scale. And let's talk maybe about supply and demand. Absolutely. Well, you you storm, stole my thesis right there, but okay. uh, extremely uh, accurate and correct. And, you know, as I said, every cycle have has different themes, right? The theme certainly circa 2001 to 2011 was China. China growth, China urbanization, China electrification. That has obviously subsided to some extent and probably more so now given what's happening at COVID, with COVID. Um, but what has replaced that thematic 
is the electrification of the rest of the world, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of those stats, uh, really, you know, whether you believe in de- the decarbonization, um, I guess, model or the execution executability of it, uh, the ship has really sailed on government's policies and overall acceptance in the world that this thing is going to happen, right? So you mentioned that it takes four to five times more copper to produce an electric vehicle than an internal combustion vehicle. Well, governments around the world have committed to having 40 to 50% of electric vehicles on the road by 2050, Yeah. right? So this is really happening. If you go to the school that your kids go to, you go to the kids' school that I kids, my kids go to, you know, electric vehicles are already pretty much at that 40 to 50 percent level, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for people to understand that it's not only the electrification as it relates to batteries, but it's also the battery storage, it's transmission. Copper is the most malleable and uh, certainly the most conductive metal um, that we know of within, you know, a reasonable price range. Uh, And so that continuation of, I guess, the electrification motif that we saw in the turn of last decade is certainly going to be a prominent factor moving forward. Now, on the supply side, yeah, uh, Goldman Sachs has called for approximately an 8 million ton deficit by 2030. So that's about um, eight Escondidas, or for those that don't know how big Escondidas, the world's largest copper mines, need to come online in eight years of incremental production. Wow. Right? Things that haven't even been defined yet. So Goldman Sachs has seen a def- deficit building over time. In short, eight million tons. Eight million. Eight tons. of the largest copper mines in the world. Wow. And so I can tell you with a great deal of certainty, it takes uh, much longer than eight years to forget about produce the copper, but yeah. to actually find it, develop it, permit it, uh, and then go into and production. Mine, yeah, production. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, I think that's a really good point. Just pause for a second. I think it's a really yeah. good point for those listeners just to dumb this down. When you look at mining metals versus exploration of oil and gas, and one of the reasons the oil and gas companies out in uh, prairies can can get financing from the bank so quickly, um, and why the banks are willing to lend on those projects so so early on, is because you drill some holes in the ground and you find some oil or some gas, you can extract it very very fast. If North Isle Copper goes and finds some phenomenal deposits in the Port Hardy area, like you mentioned, all those stages you got to go through, environmental stakeholders you've got to partner with. It's a big project, requires a lot of capital. The end prize is huge, but it doesn't happen over six months or 18 months. Correct. So to put that in context, in terms of a timeline, we're year nine of what we believe is a 15-year process. Wow. Um, So our modus operandi is to well within this uh, deficit uh, period, your deficit period is to be in production, yeah. right? And very few projects today that are of similar stage can actually claim that. Um, so I think, you know, if you think about what is going to facilitate uh, this um, need for uh, the eight to 10 million ton deficit, it's gonna come from three sources in my, my opinion, right? It's gonna come from recycling, it's going to come from dis- technology disruption, and most prevalent of which is probably hydromet, hydrometallurgy, which is essentially leaching existing waste dumps for its copper product. Hmm. 
uh, and it's going to be like literally pulling copper out of a landfill. Correct. Or a tailings uh, uh, deposit. Right. And then uh, lastly, I think it's going to come from incremental deposits like ourselves. We, we are not an Escondida. We don't have, we're not purporting to produce a, a million tons a year. Um, but I think that it's an all hands on deck. Yeah. If you believe in that uh, eight to 10 million ton deficit, everything needs to come online. And who is going to be, you know, first past the post in this situation? And I truly believe the second thesis and narrative as it relates to this cycle versus last is the social license aspect of actually getting a project moving ahead is critical. And what BC has done over the last decade, few decades is really has established a very strong framework for that permitting process. Um, well, this is, this is a really good point. I mean, just to give you some reflection on this as a kid who grew up in Port Alberni, very close to where your project is at, and we moved there in 1976. And I grew up there as a kid observing an environment that, I mean, it was a huge growth community until, of course, the recession hit in the uh, early 1980s. Um, but even after that, I mean, the, the resource sectors of logging and, and, um, and fisheries was huge. And of course, I said earlier, mining up in the northern part of the island. And the approach back then was very simple. You had a bunch of White guys like me, you know, you know, Asian Canadians like you. I mean, it was just a bunch of white guys yep. in a boardroom in Vancouver yep. who just hit the go button yep. and they mowed over everybody. Yep. Environmentalists, local stakeholders, First Nations were never even a consideration. Yes. And they just reaped the profits and filled their lined their pockets. And so what's refreshing for me to see is guys like you coming into this environment and recognizing the importance of having all those stakeholders, those local stakeholders, and it is there to create jobs and to create wealth for those different communities. And uh, you know, we've been obviously in very close contact with North Island MLAs, with NDP party whips, with bureaucrats, with uh, ministries of mines and energy, and it all converges to the same thing. We're all on the same page, which yeah. is there needs to be an opportunity for prosperity in regions like the North Island. Yeah. So uh, there was one discussion that I had with a consortium of, uh, of politicians and bureaucrats a few months ago. Um, I IPO'd Predium back in 2010. And if for those that don't know, Predium owns um, a project called the Bruce Jack Deposit, which is in uh, what's called the Golden Triangle. Sorry, just to give context for the listeners, where is the Golden Triangle? Sorry, Golden Triangle is in BC. Yeah. And it was a historically very prolific golden um egg, Up in the interior you, in the interior in the northern northern part of Brit british columbia okay um and over the course uh, prior to 2010 uh, over the course of 20 years there was very little activity and very little prosperity um and predium which had this very high grade bruce jack deposit um deployed its capital 50 million dollars initially and then over a billion dollars over the course of 10 years until just recently, uh, until the point they just got uh, purchased by Newcrest for uh, for billions of dollars, um, they put that into this project. So, so Predium and Bruchek has opened up tremendous opportunities for the First Nation groups and the communities alike within that district. And uh, my plea, uh, and it was falling on very, very open ears, is that why don't we create a version 2.0 in our in the same province? just across the pond 
on the North Island of Vancouver. Yeah, sure. You know, my belief is we have just as much mineral prospectivity there. We've got historical mining. We've got great infrastructure. We're able to reduce the footprint. We have supportive uh, First Nations and communities group. We certainly have the history, the rich history of industrial activity on the island. We've got... Um, Deputy Minister of Mines, who's from Port Hardy. We've yeah. got a premier whose constituents are in Port Hardy, or excuse me, on the North Island. You know, this is a really... You've got a port right by. Yeah, three ports. We've got three ports. A and Alice, got... McNeil, and Hardy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's, so the infrastructure there, everything is aligned to conform to the momentum that we're seeing in this cycle around environmental sustainability, around social license, around First Nations empowerment. And around critical metals, copper of which being the most important critical metal for which the liberal government has already identified in multiple occasions um, as such. And, and so relevancy is so important in, in many different avenues. And Well, this highlights the environmental <coughs> side. And I think this is one of the things I've noticed when I go to PDAC every year. Of course, there's always a group of people out front protesting uh, with their iPhones taking yep. video of uh, how nasty the mining industry, right. mining industries and mining companies. And that's why I do this podcast and have companies like you on here to say, look, look, the reality of life is in, in, in order for us to be able to live in this modern society, we have everything in this room to listen to this podcast. You have to have goods that were mined. That's right. And otherwise we all have to live in tents and, that's right. and, and under lean twos. So when I look at that, I think, well, there are different types of mining companies Correct. in different jurisdictions. Correct. And in a similar theme to what I know the Canadian Conservative Party been highlighting about how you know ethical Canadian oil is yep. versus oil from, say, Saudi Arabia or Russia. I mean, we have this amazing opportunity in this nation to provide an economic base for lots of people in small communities who don't have you know a lot of job opportunities. And we can do it in an ethical way that's very transparent. I mean, as a public company, you just have to be, there's so much transparency about how you operate. Absolutely. And it's right in our backyard. So, I mean, I, I want to highlight something else just for listeners to really get, get the concept because copper, if you talk to somebody about copper, it sounds kind of boring, hmm. right? I mean, like, I mean, you probably don't find you're the not CEO of a company. No, not for you. <laughs> not but I mean, if you talk to somebody about gold or copper, gold just has a yeah. sort of sex appeal to it. Yeah, but if yeah. you think about practically, you know, from 2010 till 2020, so basically in, uh, roughly around the last decade, worldwide use of copper has increased by 31% mm -hmm. in a decade. Yes. Right? And uh, now you mentioned that Goldman Sachs uh, quote of a deficit of what was the number? 8 million tons a year. 8 million. And I know we've gone our, done our own research and expected that the, the one was by Rystad Energy and they said around 6 million. So whether it's 6 or it's 8, uh, this deficit has got to have a major impact on the price of copper. If you look at copper prices today, yeah, they're off their all-time highs, but only off by, you know, they've gone from five bucks to four fifteen or so. But they're way higher than they were before. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily reflect where things are going as well. Like, where is copper most used? Is it is it just broadly used in a whole bunch? Or like when we talk about lithium, yep. for example. Mm -hmm. Like I know when we sat down with John Ev Evans yes. from Lithium Americas, it was a really easy answer. He's like, basically it's used in batteries. Correct. It's batteries for your phone, batteries for your cars. Like that's yep. the equate. But copper has a lot more common uses. That's but correct. Is, is there any one, like if you looked at all the copper usage around the world, is yeah. it mostly electric, electric, electrification or 
the trans transfer of electricity from point A yeah. to point B? Is yeah. that what it is? Or? Yeah. So so you're absolutely right. It's transmission. It's electric transmission at this okay. point, right? But you know this emergence of battery, not only battery um, uh, uh, electric vehicles rather, but battery storage, which is becoming exceedingly more and more important as it relates to capacity, as it relates to even doing projects like ours in a remote area, right? Mm -hmm. This battery storage, in, instead of using a perhaps a diesel genset, is it going to be extremely important. So all of these components um, really add to the incremental uh, need for copper. But historically, you're right. It has been uh, more focused on infrastructure, okay. building houses, obviously your copper wires and your copper uh, pipes in your house. You know, these are very important things. But on a relative basis, um, it is, I, I'd say, pales into, pales into comparison in terms of the gross prospects. In terms of, uh, I saw your interview with John. I thought that was a wonderful interview. Yeah, thanks. And you asked a very good He's question. Great guest. Yeah, 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 and uh, you know, you know, you asked the essential question, which is, what is the disruptive um, potential of moving away from lithium, cobalt, nickel-generated batteries, or batteries that are uh, that use these elements? And and he had a very good answer for it, and which I absolutely you know, agree with. But personally, I think that no matter what the battery chemistry you use, regardless of lithium or anything else, copper is the underlying commonality. You cannot replace the copper. It's the pipeline. It's the pipeline for right. it, right? And so that is what is makes it- Is it the easiest way to consider it? It's like Enbridge has this pipeline that runs sort of, you know, we have pipelines all across North America, but it runs from Vancouver all the way out to the prairies. That's right. And, and so copper is the same thing, right? I mean, it just, it's what runs that electricity from, you know, your kettle from the, you know, sightsee dam in the middle of BC. That's correct. That's a, that's a great analogy. I might have to steal it from you at sure. one point in time, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's also the reason why people are saying perhaps copper can turn into uh, the next oil as it relates to an economic indicator. We're at this precipice in the cycle where at one point, everybody is going to want to come in to the copper play. Off-takers, traders, smelters, royalty companies, gold companies, copper companies, base metal companies. You know, we're starting to even see the Bezos, the um, uh, Elon Musks taking very, very aggressive plays in the underlying right. commodities now because they recognize that they can't build anything they want to build around sustainability uh, and decarbonize without these essential critical metals. Yeah. We're seeing governments coming into play, identifying critical metal elements uh, that they're giving subsidies for. Uh, as yeah, we're gonna highlight that with the yeah. latest Trudeau budget. Absolutely. Okay, Sam, I wanna go back to uh, a couple of just sort of basic principles of copper. Now, for, uh, pro copper production, where it's made in the world. You know, it's interesting, Canada being the hotbed of, of um, the mining sector, we have more mining companies that are publicly listed than anywhere else in the world between the TSX, TSX Venture. Uh, but Canada is actually ranked number 11th in the world on copper production. Mm -hmm. Where are the top three countries in the world? Where are those being, where are those uh, top countries producing copper? And yeah. is it pretty widespread or is it very concentrated? Yeah, it's a great question because Canada was top three, top five in the 70s and 80s when this island copper mine was producing. And then what happened, there was this uh, emergence. Oh, really? Yeah, no, Canada has always been a copper nation. In fact, even today, BC is Canada's largest copper producer. And of all the commodities, it's approximately 30, 35% of total production, uh, including met coal, including zinc, including other uh, commodities, really? including gold. So copper 
BC copper has historically been extremely uh, meaningful, but even today when uh, your statistic is entirely correct, it doesn't even crack the top 10 in the world. And that's because there was a tremendous amount of migration away back in the 70s and 80s and 90s as these South American companies led by Chile and Peru and to some extent Argentina started to um, uh, really open up, open up to the rest of the world for foreign investment. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that it, it, they are a fruitful, incredibly uh, prosperous geological area for copper. Um, it, the land is, is, is it's extremely uh, conducive outside of the fact they don't have as much fresh water as we have, but the mineral prospect, uh, prospectivity is second to none, perhaps outside of Africa. <coughs> I guess what the issue is today is that now we've seen some of that acceleration coming back to catch up with them around the social license that they have to mine these things right. and the distribution of wealth across their um, societies. Yeah. And what we're seeing now- Effectively what you're saying is their mining activities today are kind of akin to what we saw 20, 30 years ago in Canada. Correct. And it's starting to bite them I know, I know the Lundines are really big on that social license that you're highlighting. Yeah. Um, that's very important to them. It, it, but it's also the distribution. It's not only just the social license, the environmental uh, stewardship, it's also the distribution of wealth. How, do, how do yeah. pe- does a normal person actually see this you know, transpire into an equitable uh, distribution of wealth? Right. right. And so uh, that's where Canada differs from... Uh, uh, yeah, some of these Latin American nations, yeah, Latin right? America, yeah. And, and so what we're now seeing is a little bit of frustration and disruption happening in the politics of these countries that I've mentioned that is really scaring a lot of the larger incumbents hmm. uh, to the extent, you know, there's no way that they're going to exit the countries. We're obviously not seeing that happen. Yeah. But what they're doing is they're looking at coming back to copper producing nations that have strong infrastructure, good rule of law, good um, stable politics. And do institutional investors care about this? Absolutely. So, right, absolutely, right? Because in the end, if you can't take it out of the ground, it's worth nothing. Right, good point. Right, or if you're getting taxed 75% above a certain price, then it's worth nothing to an investor. Right. Right, so I think there's, um, there's definitely recognition just, you know, by way of reference. I'm going to pivot now to finish this uh, finish this off. I want to talk about flow through investing for a moment. Um, and I'll, I'll make a couple of comments on this. So I'm not a big fan of, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big, and this, I'm very open on this on social media of, around subsidizing businesses. Um, I, you know, I know recently the, the federal government, I think the big deal with GM to convert an Oshawa automobile plant to an EV plant and, you know, taxpayers on the hook for a couple hundred million dollars when I think realistically GM would have write that check for themselves anyways, because that's where the market's going. But the one type of um, subsidy or sort of quasi subsidy is in the flow through space. I've, I've seen it work over the last 20 years of my career and it works like it's genius and it makes a lot of sense. So to simplify it, Investors are incentivized to put their money into higher risk projects like North Isle Copper and Gold because it's an actual exploration play. You know, without that support, it's going to be harder for you to attract, you know, retail investor dollars. You might get the institutional money, but not so much by maybe retail investors. But if a retail investor who's a high income earner knows that they can get some money back 
through the taxes they're already planning on paying anyways. It's not like they just get a check written to them. They have to be a high taxpayer uh, through a flow through investment. Then it gets money into your pocket and that money has to be spent on the exploration. It can't be used for marketing. It can't be used for you to go fly to New York to meet institutional investors. Like you have to put that money in the ground, which actually is good for the economy. Um, so I'm a big fan of flow through investing. Now, what's interesting is um, Justin Trudeau, who I'm not a huge fan of, but his, him and his Liberal Party have recently announced what they call, um, the, the, they define certain metals as critical minerals. And one of them is copper. And they've announced their critical mineral exploration tax credit as part of their 2022 budget. And this is providing a 30% tax credit uh, on top of what you can get here locally in BC. So my team ran the math and by our math, if you were a high income earner in British Columbia, investing in a project like North Isle Copper and Gold, after if this gets passed, you're gonna get back about 75 cents in the dollar in tax credits, assuming it's a super clean deal, there's no premium being paid, that kind of thing. I mean, flow throughs are a little bit complicated, but just to dumb it down, if you had $100,000, you're paying 53.5% tax in, in British Columbia, you'd get about 70 to $75,000 back on, on tax credits. To me, that's pretty interesting to see the federal government making this, adding this sort of little extra bump in the tax credits that investors can get. It kind of tells you what they're seeing as well. That's exactly right. And I think the significance in my takeaway uh, of it is, well, A, to address your comment, I agree with you 100% uh, as it relates to these subsidies. These are subsidies that um, are essentially put into the ground directly to find the minerals that are important to Canada, our society, jobs. I think over half a billion dollars was spent in exploration alone last year in this province, right? So mm -hmm. imagine how many jobs that provides. Imagine how many people that are employed at the assay labs, at the drillers, the contractors. So this is an absolute critical industry for Canada and BC. And I fully believe that's what makes us competitive. And that's why our infrastructure is second to none in the world around the financiers, the, the engineers, the drillers, the geologists, they're all here in BC and in Canada. And that's what makes us competitive across the world. The second thing uh, that I'd like to take away from this is as to your point, the fact that now they've bifurcated the critical minerals um, exploration tax credit and made it a separate and bigger tax credit, uh, which is 30% versus the regular uh, minerals exploration tax credit of 15% is hugely indicative of what I've been espousing over the last uh, yeah, little while, sure which is. is the ship has sailed. Policy has now been enacted. Policy is now moving. Everyone is talking about the decarbonization by 2050, electrification, et cetera, et cetera. They've now validated my claim that copper is one of the essential critical minerals to make this happen. It's in fact the critical mineral to make this happen. So the additional tax credit um, that's provided by the, through this budget is strictly focusing on these types of critical elements. So you have to actually prove that you, know, you are looking for copper. And uh, that's easy for us because 64% of our asset base or our deposit by revenue is copper, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think that um, this is a fantastic uh, movement for not only ourselves, but everybody in the industry uh, in Canada. I think it makes us tremendously competitive 
uh, it perhaps brings us back to being top three in the world, right. uh, which I, I, I don't see why we shouldn't be given that um, we should be viewed. And I think we are starting to be viewed as leaders in the world as it relates to how to tackle these new issues and new themes around social license, sustainability and mm -hmm. the environment. Important themes. Very important. Yeah. So I, yeah. I know that there is a task force uh, in British Columbia, um, economic task force that is driven by um, uh, the BC government, uh, where we are, they're selecting a few companies, including ourselves, to go on the road uh, and to espouse the virtues of investing in British Columbia. Uh, British Columbia being obviously a stable jurisdiction with strong rule of law, with a very transparent permitting process. Yes, it takes a little bit longer to permit in British Columbia, but the way I view it, once you have it, it's assurance that the project is going to go ahead as yeah, planned. It's a really good point. Yep. Yeah. Let's finish off by by going back to North Isle Copper and Gold. Tell me a bit about where you guys see yourselves finishing off in 2022. Uh, you got any financings coming down the pipeline? Any news releases? You obviously can't tell us what they're going to be, but do you have any kind of news pending yep. drill activities? Like, Give us a little bit of sense of sure. what's going to happen the rest of this year that you sort of foresee. Sure, absolutely. So right now, uh, as I mentioned before, one of our main priorities from an exploration perspective is to find this 40, 50, 40 to 50 million ton resource at Northwest Expo. That's an incremental resource that currently doesn't exist in our um, resource base today. Uh, the second uh, priority for us is to get out our drilling from 2021. So assays uh, are still pending. Everyone knows the issues and trials and tribulations that people are going through with assay labs. Uh, we still have uh, our 2021 and our initiated 2022 program coming from Hushima. Okay. Um, so that's something that people should should uh, hopefully see uh, shortly. The third uh, priority for us is to understand the net effect of this incremental 40 to 50 million tons uh, around our current project. Can we make it a an extension right now? As I said, we've got 100,000 ounces uh, of production, of recoverable production uh, a year, and uh, 100 million pounds of copper production a year for 22 years as defined by the PEA. You know, what does this incremental uh, amount of 40 to 50 million tons do from a gold and copper perspective? Um, the, th the fourth is actually metallurgy. Metallurgy is very important. So, uh, this is a very typical uh, copper gold porphyry system, very similar to what we saw uh, at BHP's Island Copper Mine. The recoveries on the copper is beautiful. It reports into a chalcopyrite. Uh, pyrite. The gold reports into the py pyrite, but on the peripheral of the pyrite. Um, so right now, uh, think about the recoveries on the gold are not great. Uh, 100,000 ounces go to our account and 100,000 ounces go to war waste. And so we know we could improve on that because we've seen historical suggestions through obviously BHP's uh, um, program and through our MET test work that uh, indicates that we don't have to throw half of our gold away. So that's something that we're advancing uh, immediately as well. And I think okay. it's going to have a huge effect. And then last but certainly not least, um, I think that there is... Um, a lot of talk, certainly, about good relationships and formations and partnerships with uh, our First Nation communities. And, and cert I, 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 I believe that they're as strong as uh, I've represented them. Um, we are looking to formalize that in some form of an agreement that perhaps bridges that uh, to uh, an IBA sometime in the future. What's an IBA? IBA is an Impact Benefits Agreement. Okay. Uh, and so this would be the bridge to that. It, what it would do is enable us to um, obviously have their uh, public support for the project in concept 
give them the ability and the capacity to assess the project at a very early stage, such that once we get down to the road where we're actually looking to permit this in, in two years after our environmental baseline studies, we will have agreement that this is the project that we've defined together, uh, and that's reasonable for, for all parties, and uh, in, including uh, uh, our First Nations partners. So that's something that I think is going to be uh, hugely impactful uh, as it relates to people's perception of uh, you know, our uh, ability to move the project forward with First Nations, our First Nations support. Sam, it's obvious you're very excited about copper. Uh, you talked earlier about how copper is uh is more useful than gold yep. you made that reference to pulling gold out of the ground to put back into the ground do you think we would ever see an olympics where first place is a copper medal <laughs> so will a copper ever <laughs> exceed 1850 uh, per ounce <laughs> probably not if they do it's probably you know, not going to be the metal used for electrification anymore <laughs> Well, I'm really excited for you. Sam Lee, President and CEO of North Isle Copper and Gold, looking to lead the way to maybe uh, Vancouver Island's next big copper project. I'm very excited for you, Sam. Nice to see you in here at uh, Coastal Front. Thanks for being on our show today. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really yeah. enjoyed this. That's great. Thanks. Cheers.